Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 14, Pope Soder. Soder? Like Hoder? Like S-O-T-E-R. Oh, so Soat? <laughs> With an R on the end. What is a soat? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're off to a great start. Perfect. It's quite a name, though. I mean, Soder. Urban Dictionary says soat. Originally an acronym standing for scum of the earth. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, Soda, you're off to a bad start. You sure are. Well, let, let's jump into it right there, because I guess we should talk about what Soda actually means, which is, it's the Greek word for savior or deliverer. Opposite. Totally different. <laughs> Not scum of the earth. And, you know... This tells us two things about Soder, really. It tells us that his family was Greek in origin, which we know to be true. Like, his father's name was Concordius. Ooh, like grapes. Like grapes! Or like, you know, Concord. Blessed Concord, getting along, having a son called the Savior. You know, it's, it's all good stuff. This also tells us that they were a Christian family, because naming your child after the Savior is a Christian thing to do. Sure is. Not scum of the earth. That would be a terrible name for your child. Despite being Greek in heritage, we know that Soder was born in Fondi, in what was the Campanian region, which is today the Lazio region of Italy, which is basically halfway between Rome and Naples, and it's right along the Appian Way. This makes it a fairly important stopgap in the Roman era, and we're definitely going to come back up in our story to Fondi, because, well, sizzle here for you. Fondi was once under control of the Catani in the 1299-1300s, and they will give us Pope Boniface VIII, and they will also be the location of a conclave that's going to result in the massive Western schism between Pope Urban VI and anti-Pope Clement VII in 1378. Fondi. It's going to be a happening place in the future. We're going to be fond of Fondi. And I'm sorry I said that. But I feel like that's the kind of lame sign that they would have there. You're going to be fond of Fondi when all anybody knows is that there's a ruling family that becomes Pope and then there's a schism that comes from it. You don't have a good claim to fame. No. It will factor back into our story, so put a pin in Fondi. All right. But Soder's getting ahead of this trend, because he's the first papal significance of Fondi before it was cool. And then he grew up, and then he entered the church, and was consecrated as a priest, and then a bishop, at least we can assume, and then he becomes pope. Early life done. Wow, that was fast. Yeah, that's pretty much all we have. This is going to be a short one. Fair. So then he becomes Pope, and interestingly enough, finally, based on some of the sources we actually have, we might have, for the first time since Peter, actual, genuine insight into what the Pope's personality was like. Ooh, personality. Actual personality. I mean, it's not super in-depth, but... It's commented on several times in primary sources, and then it's echoed a lot in the secondary sources. So it is something, 
Is it because he's disagreeable? No, it's it's totally the opposite, actually. Here, I'll read directly from Father Alban Butler from the 1866 Lives of the Saints, which has this to say. St. Soter was raised to the papacy upon the death of St. Anicetus in 173. By the sweetness of his discourses, he comforted all persons with the tenderness of a father and assisted the indigent with liberal arms, especially those who suffered for the faith. Oh, he's such a good boy. He is. And it's awesome because this isn't just like priest crush writing like we had last week. These are actual themes that appear in all of the sources that talk about Soter. They talk about charity and fatherly love and generosity. And so we're quickly going to get the impression that Soter is a man who's actually admired for his qualities. And yeah, okay, it seems like it should be a really common sense thing that the ultimate head of a church should be kind and loving and giving, but the church is still filled with fallible and sometimes awful people like we've seen, so this is nice to see. This is a good boy pope, not the scum of the earth. <laughs> I mean, it just, it just makes it more ironic now, doesn't it? Yeah, thanks, Urban Dictionary. He's actually made some contributions to church and church history, and we have a couple things to talk about. But before we do that, let's get the Liber Pontificalis out of the way, because it tells us that he ordained 18 priests, 9 deacons, and 11 bishops during his papacy. But we don't know in how many sessions that was. They didn't actually say this time. It could have all been at once. We really don't know. It was probably spread out over a couple of years. And he also might have reconfirmed the reconfirmation of the confirmation of Easter on a Sunday. Oh, Easter. Yeah, it was mentioned and I was just like, nope, mm, unless there's actual development here. Nope, I'm not going to talk about it. We're also told that Soter passed an ordination that forbade women from burning incense or from touching the chalice or the paten, and the Liber Pontificalis says that he ordained no monk should touch the consecrated altar cloth or offer incense in holy church. Oh. Yeah, we don't have any actual corroborating sources to any of this, but I feel like wouldn't that be covered under Sixtus's no-touchy policy? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's more specifically underlings and women now. Yeah, so it's like, no-touchy, especially you. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a thing. Yeah, I'm glad they changed that rule, because having been an altar server for so many years, ah, uh, so many, so many too many years. That's fantastic. We're going to have to get your, like, Catholic life story on, on here as a bonus episode one time. Uh, what it was like with Deacon Dad. He wasn't Deacon Dad until high school, so... Fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, I was altar server, and I touched all of those things. I touched them a lot. My fingers were all over them. <laughs> Soder is rolling in his grave. <laughs> How dare. You would have been excommunicated in the early church. I would have. For shame, Fry. For shame. <laughs> but anyways, Soder. There's a couple more things that he did. He's credited with declaring that marriage, as a sacrament, was only valid when it was observed and blessed by a priest. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. That makes my marriage invalid. Well, it also invalidates pretty much every marriage in Rome and everywhere else in the world in the church's eyes. So, you know, that's not really going to win him any friends there. No, I thought he was being nice. 
What's going on? He's just saying that, like, our marriages are the only real marriages. But, yeah. Again, this is one of those ones that's not backed by primary sources. This is only, like, liver pontificalis stuff, so... That's fair. Maybe it's not him. The other decree that is credited to him is that all Christians are required to attend and receive communion on Holy Thursday slash Maundy Thursday, which, again, for our non-Catholics, is the Thursday before Easter. Easter. Again. And it's associated with the Last Supper and Christ's foot washing. Yeah, the foot washing. The only exception for the Christians who are now required to attend and receive communion is made for those who are in public penance. Okay. Yeah. This is an interesting insight into the early church here, seeing that public penance is already in play as a canonically legitimate act. Remember, penance is one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic faith, along with baptism and Eucharist and confirmation, anointing the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. But it's interesting because this is an idea that goes right back to the heart of the church. I found a great article detailing public penance in the early church from Saints Cosmas and Damian Catholic Parish in Puxitani. So we can actually be a little bit more specific here on what public penance looks like. Yeah, because Three Hail Marys does not a public penance make. It sure does not. Penance in the early church had three different forms. Private penance, public penance, and solemn penance, which are respectively increasing in severity. Solemn penance is the most severe, and it's for capital sins like murder, adultery, idolatry, and more. And we're going to get into much, much more detail about what kind of penance is required or not required for those kind of sins in a couple episodes. Because it is a sacrament, penance has a process. First, you must confess to a priest, who then determines the gravity of the penance required to appease God of the sin. If the sin is determined to require a public penance, then the confessor was usually to appear before a local bishop or the Presbyterium council, who would decide, again, whether the sin actually was worthy of public confession and penance or all of that. And then with this, they would be given what's called exomologesis, which is public penitential exercises, like marking themselves with ashes, fasting, prostration, calling out for God, or genuflection, which is praying while kneeling. Yep. Okay. All of those are not quite so bad. Not quite. It's not meant to be awful, 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 but it is meant to be public and for people to witness. And because of this, the public penances were usually conducted on Ash Wednesday, which explains why Soder would omit these people from Holy Communion the following day, because they'd still be doing this process and undergoing the reconciliation part of their penance, which is where they are receiving the absolution of their sin after they have to attend sermons on their commitment to not recommitting these sins. Yeah, and you can't go get communion if you're being a sinner, blah de blah yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. The idea was that once a person had to perform an act of public penance, they would not have to again. So this is not something that you're supposed to repeat. If you've been brought to public penance, you should not end up there again. So it's a very serious and solemn thing, and it takes 
more than a day, so you get out of communion this once. You don't have to go to Holy Thursday Mass. Maybe you do. You're probably already still there at the church genuflecting and prostrating and waiting for your sermon, so, you know, hall pass. That's what we have as far as his contribution to the church, but we need to, again, talk a little bit about what else is going on in Rome and what else is going on with Christianity. Because last week, we discussed a new religious movement, the Montanism, that's coming out and being condemned as heresy by Anicetus. And Soter's going to continue this and push against the Montanists, who are still spreading across Rome, and now across Gaul, developing quite a large following, to say the least. To come up against them, he decides he's going to write an encyclical, which is a letter to be distributed to all of the churches of the faith, which explicitly condemns Montanism as heresy. And we're going to leave it there because we're going to come back to the Montanists and the response in Gaul in our next episode. So for now, what you need to know is that they're still out there, they're still growing, and Soder is saying, nah. Not this. You guys are heretics. And now, let's get into the main thing that we know about Soder. And one of the reasons that we have this reputation of him being so generous and this is because we actually have a contemporaneous letter, or at least we have a fragment of a contemporaneous letter, written by Bishop Dionysius of Corinth. In this letter, we are able to determine that Pope Soter had sent a letter to the Corinthians with some advice and some instruction on theological matters, along with alms and provisions. So, very, very generous. Mm -hmm. We actually have the fragments of these letters preserved thanks to Eusebius once again in Church History 4. So, I'm going to read the translations for you, and we're going to break them down. All right. So, the first. From the beginning, it has been your custom to do good to all the brethren in many ways, and to send alms to many churches in every city, refreshing the poverty of those who sent requests, or giving aid to the brethren in the mines by the alms which you have had the habit of giving from old, Romans keeping up the traditional custom of the Romans, which your blessed Bishop Soter has not only preserved, but has even increased by providing the abundance which he has sent to the saints, and by further consoling with blessed words with brethren who came to him as a loving father to his children. So what we see here, basically, is that Soter has a reputation, even though we don't have any other records for, but that Dionysius is at least aware of and references quite easily as if it's just a known fact that Soter gives generously to the churches beyond the scope of Rome. Yeah. And it's clearly in this case that it's made him quite beloved and has unified the church to really like him because it's tying these really far-reaching churches back to Rome again, this primacy of Rome thing. He's really enforcing that because he's he's giving to the churches and he's making them want to be a part of what he's doing. And he's also flattering Soter here with comments on his administration of Rome. You know, he's maintaining the traditions, he's expanding and increasing the church. And so for once, we're not just relying on this idea of apostolic succession to know what changes and growth are happening because we have actual bishops saying, hey, look, you are actually doing an awesome job and thank you so much for that. So the next segment says, you also by this instruction have mingled together the Romans and Corinthians 
who are like the planting of Peter and Paul. For they both came to our Corinth and planted us, and taught alike, and alike going to Italy and teaching there, were martyred at the same time. So you might remember back when we spoke about Clement and his famous letter to the Corinthians, Corinth had really been the troubled cousin church to the Romans at this point. They had all those problems with discord and not being a unified entity, and they didn't trust the presbyters that were there, and Rome had had to come and intervene to reestablish just what exactly ecclesiastical authority was. Like, you guys don't have the right to depose those presbyters. Only I do. We've seen this sort of troubled cousin relationship. They haven't been breaking away from the church, we can say, but they have been the one that's kind of having a harder time working itself around the details. Now, at this stage, we're seeing Corinth establish itself as basically indivisible. To use, again, this, this metaphor of the cousin to Rome, it's now one who's closely entwined and from the same root, i.e. Peter and Paul. They are the first of the churches. Corinth now more than ever is feeling that its relational ties to Rome is to its benefit and that they have this stronger bond within the church, which is a reflective of this idea that, again, Soter is building a stronger, cohesive church overall. So this is, this is a good time. Yeah, he's got Corinth back under and everything seems to be going smooth. Yeah, and they're, they're getting alms and they're getting some, they're getting some help from Soter. So they're not, you know, trying to fight within themselves as much anymore. That's pretty cool. It's good. The last segment says, Today, therefore, we have kept the Holy Lord's Day, on which we have read your letter, which shall always have to read and be admonished, even as the former letter which was written to us by the ministry of Clement. So this is pretty huge. They are putting Soder's letter pretty much on par with Pope Clement's letter to the Corinthians. Yeah, and that was pretty important. And that was, like, almost eight popes ago that this letter was written and it's still being read out in the churches in Corinth. So they are holding it up to this par of something that basically is a legacy item now as canon to the church. So very, very significant. And this is showing a really strong level of respect and reverence that Soter's position as Pope is now currently carrying. Again, Rome is now without question the highest authority in the church and to receive a letter and alms directly from the Pope is something worth being excited about and sharing with the whole congregation. Again, we are seeing the office of Pope actually become something. And the reverence of this letter is likely also why it was preserved and commented on so much in the sources. So in hindsight, it's pretty great. Something was preserved because of its value, and now we can access it even to today. So... As a historian, well done, Soder. Woohoo! Hooray! Hooray! Huzzah! All right, so that's pretty much all that we have on Soder. So let's deal with his death. Yes. How did this man die? Well, let's start off by saying we have a death date, but not really. Um, one source suggests that he died on April 22nd, 170, but by all accounts... Pretty much every account. His papacy lasted much longer than that, so for our purposes, we're going to throw that out. It it really doesn't make a lot of sense. But we we do know that April 22nd will be his feast day, so the Roman Martyrology mentions him on this day, but weirdly, 
The versions that I found of the martyrology don't say that it's his death day. They credit it as his birthday. And while they call him martyr, again, many people today accept that this is probably not true. And in the 1969 revision of the calendar, it was clarified that Soder wasn't a martyr because no sources exist to say otherwise. So how did he die? Probably naturally. We don't know. Maybe he's immortal and living somewhere. It's possible. And, you know, that's that's funny that we should say that because it turns out there's also conflicting information about where he's buried. No one knows for sure. Either he's on Vatican Hill somewhere or he's buried in the cemetery of Calixtus like Anicetus was since this is a growing trend. But we don't know. So maybe he's immortal. Where are you, Soder? <laughs> Come tell us if you are immortal. We'll, we'll give you a shout out on the podcast. We sure will. You can tweet us. You know how to use that, right? Sure. 2,000 years? you got to have everything figured out by then. That's Soder. Any impressions? Um, no, not really. Okay, well, let's see how he does when we rate him. Papatum infallium. He does this marriage as a sacrament thing and alienates the population. But he also gives more power to the church in the Christian communities by doing that. He's personally generous and showing this spirit of unity. So he's building this church that wants to be together and they're happy. And yes, it's because they're getting stuff, but they're happy about the stuff that they're getting. And they think that that's cool. Yeah, that's a good thing. He's reinforcing the primacy of Rome through benevolent acts and presence yeah but he's also writing to the church with theological advice and he doesn't seem to just be chastising them he seems really like invested in making sure this thing works so there's that he's institutionalizing the communion practice around the sacred holiday he might have had a role in the easter conundrum these are things that work in his favor like i think he's got a score it's got to be good because he's really, this is the first time in a long time that we see a strong united church. Even if it's only for a little while, it's it's a good thing. Yeah, um, I don't know. I'll give him like a seven. A seven. That's a pretty good score. Yeah, I, the last person who had kind of a more unified church, we gave a pretty high score to, so. Yeah, I think I think he can rack up some points for this because he seems to be almost universally liked and that's not something we're gonna see for a very long time so i think i'm gonna give him a six and that will give him a 13 for papatum and valium i forget who the last pope we rated really high on that was um let's see clement got a full 20 ah yes so if corinth loves them so do we. And he just scored, he scored one point higher than Hygienus, who we, he quite liked. So I think that's, that's good. Mm -hmm. That seems to be on par. We're going to get, eventually get really consistent with our scoring. So we're trying. Yeah. This is, this is a purely subjective thing. Nobody can get mad about it. Fructus prohibitum. We've got nothing. He seems like he was a nice dude. He was the goodest boy. He's a goodest boy who gets a goodest zero. Seculari impactum. I think there is one thing that stands out here. I don't know if it's going to earn him any points because it's not a good thing, but he's invalidating everyone's marriages. So that's affecting the secular population. They're, I mean, is it really? If they care. 
because they're not Christians. I mean, some of them might care. Like, some of the people who are already Christian who are like, oh, no, now I have to get married again. Tragic. One, I can see it being like, a, you know, if a Christian turns to, to some Roman married couple on the street and goes, your marriage isn't valid. I can see them being like, what crawled up your butt and died? Like, you know, I just... <laughs> They they might not be too happy about that. That might alienate people who felt okay about the Christians and are now being told, you're not valid. That's not a way to win friends. You don't tell people they're not valid. That's not cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an impact. It's not a good one. So if if he had more impact on the secular world, I'd give him positive points and then I'd take a couple away for that. But I think it's got to be zero. Yeah. It's not anything super impacty. It's slightly annoying. Yeah, it's kind of just like, look at me. I I ha- think I have a say in your personal lives, even though you have nothing to do with me. So there's that. So that'll give him a zero for Secularis Impactum. Facium Sanctus. All right, it's time to look at this man's face. Are you ready? I'm never ready to see these old men. <laughs> well... Here's an old man for you. That is an old man. That is the oldest man. He does look a bit older. I really like his hair. It's kind of got that beachy, surf-combed kind of vibe going on there. The 90s is alive and well on his head. Yeah, it kind of looks like he was posing for this portrait and someone brought out a fan and it just kind of lifted the hair just slightly. It's like his glamour shot. Yeah. So what do you think of it? Um, you know, he's not bad looking and he's not there's there's not a lot remarkable about him no he's got a real straight nose yep but isn't that more more the roman nose yeah kind of sort of he's got that those wispy mustache that just melds right into the beard it looks like it might have a tiny little split in the beard i don't know like it's it's decent it's nothing special but it's decent there yeah there's not anything really to say about him Mm mm-hmm so I'm just going to give him a straight five because I'm neither warm nor cold. That's that's a good score, I think. I'm going to give him a three, I think, and then we'll divide that up. Is it because he's old? No, because all of the popes are going to be old. I just think it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's okay, but it doesn't do anything amazing for me. It's just okay. So he's going to get a two for Facian Sanctus. Tempus Pontificus. All right, so we have a lot of numbers for him. 167 to 174. 162 to 168. 170 to 177. The most common is 167 to 174, but since we gave Anicetus up till 168 to die, we're going to give him 168 to 174. And that's six years for a total of 1.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Yeah, he's a saint, like I said before. Well, yeah. His feast day is April 22nd, and he shares a feast day with St. Caius, who is also a future pope. Pope number 28, (laughs) so... Spoilers. I know, I know. We got a ways before we get to him, so... And a lot of the times when I was doing research for this, because they share a feast day, I would get information about both of them. So I've had a little peek into St. Caius, but for now, that's all you know, is that he's a future pope. 
And, of course, Soder is not the patron saint of anything, so we can make him one. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. Oh, can we make him the patron saint of that place he's from? Fondy? Yeah, there. Fondy. Let's, I'm gonna check and make sure that Fondy doesn't have a patron saint first. Just to be sure. Because that would be hilarious. Oh my god, they have a patron saint! <laughs> no! Saint Honoratus of Fondi is the patron saint of Fondi, so he cannot- Dang it. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. What else? Do we want to make the super nice guy the patron saint of the scum of the earth? <laughs> make them be better, better themselves? Yes. So, yeah, okay. Patron saint of bettering scummy people. Yes. All right. That is what you are now, Soder. You are the patron saint of making garbage people better people. I think he would enjoy that. He seems like a super nice guy. So he would be like, all right, I can do that. I can help you with that problem. Yeah, why not? It just seems, it seems so fitting. So he'll give them presents. Yeah. If you're a garbage person, you should be praying to Saint Soder to make you better. Now you know. Yeah. Get to pray in garbage people. Do it. Not people who take out garbage, but people who are actual garbage. I guess we should specify. <laughs> so let's look at what his final score is. Drum roll, because he doesn't have a long episode. Uh, he has scored a 17.5. Oh, good. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty good score. Our score is very pretty wildly here, anywhere from like 7 to 51 so far. So the teens club seems to be a respectable place to be for these early popes. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not the worst. He's kind of middling range, and I think that that works pretty well for him. So that leaves us with one question to ask. Fry, do you think that this man has enough pizzazz, has enough lasting impact, has enough personality, since we actually have personality? Yeah, he's got a personality. Do you think it's enough personality to be worthy of a papal bull? Hmm. Well, we, I think we gave Clement one. Mm-hmm. And. He seems like Clement's successor. In the Catholic impact, maybe. Yeah. He didn't really do much secularly. No. And we didn't give it to Hygienus, which we thought had a pretty good impact on the church as well. Yeah. It's got to be somebody that you're excited by, that you want to tell the story of. I'm not real excited about him. I just know he's a very good boy. I think he is the goodest boy, and I don't want to send him to purgatory, but he he's just can't cut the mustard for a papal bull. So should we give him, like, maybe, like, a visitor's ticket or something? Can we give him a papal cap? A papal cap. What is that like? Maybe if there's a wild card, we want to revisit him at some point if we have a really weird number. Yeah. Yeah, I think that works because right now, I mean, we've got 266 popes to do here. If we give papal bulls out willy-nilly, our finals are going to be, by the time we get through all of them, there's going to be people in our finals that were like, why are they here? What were we thinking? So we'll give them a no. But we'll keep him in mind for the future, just because he did have a really good impact. And I think that's cool. 
Sorry, Soder, you can't quite do it on your own, but I feel like you'd be really gracious about it, so. Oh, yeah, he'd be like, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, and I think that that's just right. That's what the church needed at the time. It's just not that exciting. So that leads us to wrap up. We have some thank yous to make. As always, we'd like to thank Rex Factor for being our inspiration and Totalis Rankium for also being our inspiration and our biggest support. They've done designs for us. They've shouted out on our on their podcast about us, and they are fabulous. If you're not listening to them, get on it. We also need to thank the Why Is That podcast, who continues to support us and recommended us today. That is awesome. And Crises on Infinite, because they are always supporting us. So thank you guys so much. You are fantastic. And thank you to all of our listeners who are helping us get pretty close to our summer goal of hitting 10,000 downloads. We are creeping up, even with our bi-weekly schedule. <laughs> creeping, creeping towards that download number. It's getting there. I mean, we could we could actually hit it. It was a pretty crazy goal. Right. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PompFactsPod, and you can email us at PompFactsPod at gmail.com. You can also leave reviews on iTunes and uh, anywhere else you feel like leaving reviews. Facebook has reviews, too. PodKnife, PodChaser, all of those places have reviews. They sure do. That would be great. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye! Pope Watch. On August 20th of this year, 2018, Pope Francis has issued a letter in response to the Pennsylvania sex abuse report. Now, this is a good time to at least briefly touch on how we're going to handle this topic of sex abuse in the Catholic Church, at least for Pope Watch. When it comes to actually dealing with episodes of popes that are involved in this conflict, We'll address it then. We're a long way off from that, and we're still working out exactly how we can do that fairly and sensitively. With that in mind, this is a serious, awful issue that neither of us take lightly, or with anything other than sensitivity and compassion for the victims, and condemnation for the perpetrators. This is an irreverent podcast based on poking fun, and it's not the place for us to offhandedly comment on sex abuse. So today we're just going to present the facts as they are, and we will always when they come out, or as in this case, we are going to just read you his letter. So this is the letter of His Holiness Pope Francis to the people of God. Dear colleagues and friends, if one member suffers, all suffer with it. These words of St. Paul forcefully echo in my heart as I acknowledge once more the suffering endured by many minors due to sexual abuse, the abuse of power, and the abuse of conscience perpetrated by a significant number of clerics and consecrated persons. Crimes that inflict deep wounds of pain and powerlessness, primarily among the victims, but also in their family members and in the larger community of believers and non-believers alike. Looking back to the past, no effort to beg pardon and to seek to repair the harm done will ever be sufficient. Looking ahead to the future, no effort must be spared to create a culture able to prevent such situations from happening but also to prevent the possibility of their being covered up and perpetuated. The pain of the victims and their families is also our pain, and it is so urgent 
that we once more affirm our commitment to ensure the protection of minors and of vulnerable adults. In recent days, a report was made public which detailed the experience of at least a thousand survivors, victims of sexual abuse, the abuse of power, and of conscience at the hands of priests over a period of approximately 70 years. Even though it can be said that most of these cases belong to the past, nonetheless, as time goes on, we have come to know the pain of many of the victims. We have realized that these wounds never disappear and that they require us to forcefully condemn those atrocities and join forces in uprooting this culture of death. These wounds never go away. This heart-wrenching pain of the victims, which cries out to heaven, was long ignored, kept quiet, or silenced. But their outcry was more powerful than all the measures meant to silence it, or sought even to resolve it by decisions that increased its gravity falling into complicity. The Lord heard that cry and once again showed us on what side he stands. Mary's song is not mistaken and continues quietly to echo throughout history. For the Lord remembers the promise he made to our fathers. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We feel the shame when we realize that our style of life has denied and continues to deny the words we recite. With shame and repentance, we acknowledge as an ecclesial community that we were not where we should have been, that we did not act in a timely manner. Realizing the magnitude and the gravity of the damage done to so many lives, we showed no care for the little ones. We abandoned them. I make my own words of the then Cardinal Ratzinger, when, during the Way of the Cross, composed for Good Friday, 2005, he identified with the cry of pain of so many victims and explained how much filth there is in the Church, and even among those who, in the priesthood, ought to belong entirely to Christ. How much pride, how much self-complacency, Christ's betrayal by his disciples, their unworthy reception of his body and blood, is certainly the greatest suffering endured by the Redeemer. It pierces his heart. We can only call to him from the depths of our hearts. Kyrie Elysian. Lord, save us. The extent and the gravity of all that has happened requires coming to grips with this reality in a comprehensive and communal way. While it is important and necessary on every journey of conversion to acknowledge the truth of what has happened, in itself this is not enough. Today we are challenged as the people of God to take on the pain of our brothers and sisters wounded in their flesh and in their spirit. If in the past the response was one of omission, today we want solidarity. In the deepest and most challenging sense, to become our way of forging present and future history. In this in an environment where conflicts, tensions, and above all the victims of every type of abuse can encounter an outstretched hand to protect them, and rescue them from their pain. Such solidarity demands that we in turn condemn whatever endangers the integrity of any person. A solidarity that summons us to fight all forms of corruption, especially spiritual corruption. The latter is a comfortable and self-satisfied form of blindness. Everything then appears acceptable. Deception, slander, egotism, and other subtle forms of self-centeredness. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. St. Paul's exhortation to suffer with those who suffer is the best antidote against all our attempts to repeat the words of Cain, Am I my brother's keeper? I am conscious of the effort and work being carried out in various parts of the world to come up with the necessary means to ensure the safety and protection of the integrity of children and of vulnerable adults. 
as well as implementing zero tolerance and ways of making all those who perpetrate or cover up these crimes accountable. We have delayed in applying these actions and sanctions that are so necessary, yet I am confident that they will help to guarantee a greater culture of care in the present and future. Together with those efforts, everyone of the baptized should feel involved in the ecclesial and social change that we so greatly need. This change calls for a personal and communal conversion that makes us see things as the Lord does. For as St. John Paul II liked to say, If we have truly started out anew from the contemplation of Christ, we must learn to see him especially in the faces of those with whom he wished to be identified. To see things as the Lord does, to be where the Lord wants us to be, to experience a conversion of heart in his presence. To do so, prayer and penance will help. I invite the entire holy faithful people of God to a penitential exercise of prayer and fasting, following the Lord's command. This can awaken our conscience and arouse our solidarity and commitment to a culture of care that says never again to every form of abuse. It is impossible to think of a conversion of our activity as a church that does not include the active participation of all the members of God's people. Indeed, whenever we have tried to replace or silence or ignore or reduce the people of God to small elites, we end up creating communities, projects, theological approaches, spiritualities, and structures without roots, without memory, without faces, without bodies, and ultimately without lives. This is clearly seen in a peculiar way of understanding the church's authority, one common in many communities where sexual abuse and the abuse of power and conscience have occurred. Such is the case with clericalism, an approach that not only nullifies the character of Christians, but also tends to diminish and undervalue the baptismal grace that the Holy Spirit has placed in the heart of our people. Clericalism, whether fostered by priests themselves or by laypersons, leads to an excision of the ecclesial body that supports and helps to perpetuate many of the evils that we are condemning today. To say no to abuse is to say an emphatic no to all forms of clericalism. It is always helpful to remember that in salvation history, the Lord saved one people. We are never completely ourselves unless we belong to a people. That is why no one is saved alone as an isolated individual. Rather, God draws us to himself, taking into account the complex fabric of interpersonal relationships present in the human community. God wanted to enter into the life and history of a people. Consequently, The only way we have to respond to this evil that has darkened so many lives is to experience it as a task regarding all of us as the people of God. This awareness of being part of a people and shared history will enable us to acknowledge our past sins and mistakes with a penitential openness that can allow us to be renewed from within. Without the active participation of all church's members, Everything being done to uproot the culture of abuse in our communities will not be successful in generating the necessary dynamics for sound and realistic change. The penitential dimension of fasting and prayer will help us as God's people to come before the Lord and our wounded brothers and sisters as sinners, imploring forgiveness and the grace of shame and conversion. In this way, we will come up with the actions that can generate resources attuned to the gospel. For whenever we make the effort to return to the source and to recover the original freshness of the gospel, new avenues arrive, new paths of creativity open up with different forms of expression, more eloquent signs with words with new meaning for today's world. It is essential that we as a church be able to acknowledge and condemn with sorrow and shame the atrocities perpetrated by consecrated persons 
clerics, and all of those entrusted with the mission watching over and caring for those most vulnerable. Let us beg forgiveness for our own sins and the sins of others. An awareness helps us acknowledge the errors, the crimes, and the wounds caused in the past and allows us in the present to be more open and committed along a journey of renewed conversion. Likewise, penance and prayer will help us to open our eyes and our hearts to other people's sufferings and to overcome the thirst for power and possessions that are so often the root of these evils. May fasting and prayer open our ears to the hushed pain felt by children, young people, and the disabled. A fasting that can make us hunger and thirst for justice and impel us to walk in the truth, supporting all the judicial measures as they may be necessary. A fasting that shakes up and leads to the committed truth in charity with all men and women of goodwill, with society in general, to combating all forms of abuse, of power, sexual abuse, and the abuse of conscience. In this way, we can show clearly our calling to be a sign and instrument of communion with God and the unity of the entire human race. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it, said St. Paul. By an attitude of prayer and penance, we will become attuned as individuals and as a community to this exhortation so that we may grow in the gift of compassion, injustice, prevention, and reparation. Mary chose to stand at the foot of her son's cross. She did so unhesitatingly, standing firmly by Jesus' side. In this way, she reveals the way she lived her entire life. When we experience the desolation caused by these ecclesial wounds, we will do well, with Mary, to insist upon more prayer, seeking to grow all the more in love and fidelity to the Church. She, the first of the disciples, teaches all of us disciples how we are to halt before the sufferings of the innocent without excuses or cowardice, to look to Mary as to discover the model of a true follower of Christ. May the Holy Spirit grant us the grace of conversion and the interior anointing needed to express before these crimes of abuse our compunction and our resolve courageously to combat them. Francis, Vatican City, 20th August, 2018.